This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, a website, a portfolio, or an online store. Create your own space today by visiting squarespace.com and use offer code TREK10 to save 10%. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm donate to get our alien badges and art prints featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry. And you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me again this week, I don't know why he's here, he's just always hanging around with me for some reason over here. It's Matthew Rushing. Matthew, what are you doing on the show again this week? Well, Chris, uh, you know, I feel like I'm this show's mourn. Um, or I'm just, or I'm just kind of like that guy who's always at the 602 club, just always there, you know, never leaves. Always there. Yeah. Um, I, I mainly, you know, especially if it was the 602 club, it's because I've been sitting there trying to figure out who, what the names of Ruby's children are going to be because, well, one, I like redheads and two, who wouldn't want to marry Ruby? Uh, and my Three, my goal would be to beat Trip Tucker at figuring out the names. Uh, so yeah, that's I, that's why I'm hanging around. It, it's and four, you're hoping to see Flux's face puff up. That too. So I mean, goodness, we've just <laughs> mentioned all the things that have happened on the network this week. Uh, so you probably won't <laughs> so have we to don't put need a that network promo yeah, spot. <laughs> yeah, we won't need that <laughs> promo need spot. That. Uh, but yeah, that's what I'm doing here, Chris. Uh, what are you doing here? I mean, you're always here every week. I'm always, uh, I'm just always sitting at this desk. I'm always in this chair pretty much seven days a week. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm already here, so I might as well just hit record and, and say something. Wow. Well, I'm glad you did. Um, because, you know, Chris, uh, you had, I, I was gone for that week, but you had Larry on to talk about stellar cartography, uh, his brand new book and, uh, talked a great conversation. I loved listening to you guys. But, you know, was over at the Truck Collective, and they have all of these brand new promo images for Larry's new book coming out. And goodness, are they fantastic. And that's our news story this week. The only one we've got, but a big one. That's right. Yeah. The the conversation with Larry was fascinating, and he was describing what these maps were going to be like and explaining that this is not really a book per se, you know, it opens up and you've got all these maps inside. I mean, there is a little book component to it. But when I saw this, I saw this earlier in the week, I think it was, maybe it was when I was setting up the Ready Room News, actually, for the most recent Ready Room, except I didn't put it in there because I wanted to talk about it here on our book show. This stuff's beautiful. I'm so excited now to see what we're actually going to get here. And you know, Larry talked about the material that these maps are printed on and how it doesn't crease easily. And so you'll be able to unfold these and put them up on your wall if you want to. And after seeing them in these images, I think there's going to be a lot of Star Trek fans out there with their walls plastered in these maps. 
come December. Well, and and Chris, I, I we were talking a little bit uh, before the show, and I, for me, this is the kind of thing that I've I've really wanted. You know, I'm an, obviously I'm an, an adult now. You know, and the kind of things that I want from say nonfiction Trek books, this is really what I'm hoping for. So we we got. The Great Federation First 150 Years, which I I feel like is just an amazing book, Uh, really well done. The kind of thing I'm hoping to see, this is the kind of thing as well as a fan that I'm really hoping to see. Great collectible stuff. You know, I mean, this is, you know, being able to put these up on my wall, being able to pull them out whenever I want to be able to look at something that's being referenced in a book. This is fantastic. And, you know, as great as online is, sometimes I would love to be able to just have a big map that I can pull out that I'm not having to kind of scroll around because I don't have a ginormous screen that everything's on. Uh, this is yeah. great, and this is great work, and it comes from Larry. Yeah, this is what you need, Matthew, because when you're planning your invasion, uh, you you need a big map. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to figure out where you're going to place your ships. You know, how you're going to attack the enemy if you have to keep sliding stuff around on the screen. And you can't exactly. See. The entire area. Well, you know, so, in in in, in that cut scene from Star Trek VI that they put into the extended version, uh, where Colonel West is using the um, flip map, you know, that he has, right. and everybody's like, "Why is he using a flip map?" I mean, they've got computer screens <laughs> right. and everything like that. And I'm thinking, well, it's the same reason that I would pull out Larry's stellar cartography and these maps because sometimes you just want to have a map. You know, you want to be able to lay it out. And then, of course, there's the great scene as well in Star Trek VI where the Klingons roll out their big maps, you know, in front of Azad Bor. And so, you know, apparently. Yeah. Oh, well, and and then our favorite scene. uh, I don't know that's turned into a Star Trek VI rant, but uh, then our favorite scene is when they pull out the dictionaries because Uhura doesn't speak Klingon, uh, which. Right. Very funny scene, but. I think probably a worse scene than when Scotty runs into the bar in Star Trek sit or Star Trek five and knocks himself out. I honestly think that that's <laughs> probably a more damaging scene for a character than that. So yeah. Anyway, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But, but you know, it, it's kind of like Battlestar Galactica where the, the new one where Adama doesn't want to have the networked computers. Oh, yes. That technology yes. in the ship. And so here it is. You know, sometimes you just need to have paper maps rolled up. Yeah, you really do. Uh, and it's smart. If you're not going to um, slave your computers together, then you're going to need some, uh, you're going to need up some paper mats. And, and these, I, I just love, I, I'm really excited that this is coming out. I'm really hoping that people will buy these. This is a great deal. It's it's forty seven ninety nine. It's it's not that expensive on Amazon. Um, that is off the list price, which is seventy nine ninety nine. So this is a fantastic deal coming out in December. Fantastic thing to be getting your uh, you know Star Trek friends for Christmas right out at the right time. Uh, you know what I'm going to be wanting under the tree. This is a great look, and it comes in a, a that awesome clamshell it's got all of the the maps in it it's got this great uh book in it as well it, it's beautiful you know we were talking about how we love getting these kinds of things but we're concerned that if not enough people buy them they're not going to make any more and, and i think that's a very real concern because it's it's a lot of work and it's a lot of expense to produce something like this you know, it's not just like printing a book. This, it, there's so much custom stuff going on here. 
I am glad, however, that these books are being put out, and this was the same with the Federation, the first 150 years, by 47 North, which is an imprint of Amazon. And I I like the fact that Amazon is involved because I feel that Amazon is a company, when it comes to books, that will be willing to produce specialty items and put out some of that money for the overall sake of books and publishing. Now, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not like a, I don't love everything Amazon does. You know, I, I, I'm concerned about how the impact of online retail like this affects small bookshops, for example. However, I do think that uh, this is a case. You see, Audible's doing it, which Audible is also owned by Amazon, and they're doing it with a lot of great science fiction classics, where they're they're bringing in people to read great science fiction and create very high quality audiobooks that none of the other publishers will do anymore. So I I see that carrying through a little bit here in some of the stuff that we're getting with Star Trek, and I I really appreciate that. Well, man, if they could do it for uh, Star Trek uh, Audible books as well, I mean, we have plenty of readers who would love to have those. So, goodness, I do appreciate this. Uh, And, in fact, I do have to give a huge shout-out to them because they sent me federation first 150 years uh to be able to look out to be able to review keep that copy i love having it it's fantastic looks great on the shelf uh this will be another thing that i'll hope to be able to get and to get uh, a chance to review uh, especially with larry who's friend of the network uh, we want to be promoting this for him because this is a big deal um and really glad that they like you said they're doing this so uh, it's a it's a big um thank you to them for doing this it's beautiful it looks good we'll definitely be pushing this on the show i think this is something that everybody's going to want you know we had talked i think when we did the show about our favorite uh, non-fiction books uh, reference uh, books yeah, exactly yeah, reference Philip. books yeah. philip even talked about having and, and really liking the schematics for the enterprise d uh this mm-hmm. is is one of those things that just as beautiful just as is well done I really think that that this is something fans should go get. So I was glad that this was going to be our only news item this week because it it definitely is worth um, showcasing. Most definitely, yeah. So uh, we'll put a link in the show notes again. Hop over to Amazon, pre-order. As Larry has said, pre-orders are kind of like the likes of publishing these days. If you you pre-order from Amazon that helps them, you know, gauge interests as well and may help us get more of these titles in the future. So I was really looking forward to that. Now that, as you said, Matthew, is the only item we have in news today. The meat of today's show is our interview with David R. George III about Revelations and Dust kicking off the fall series. But before we get into that, Matthew, let's tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show. And of course, that sponsor is Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that combines hosting and content management, and it makes it simple for you to create your own space online. Uh, You know, you could create a blog if you just want to talk about a particular topic. You can create a website if you have bigger plans or you're a business. If you're an artist, you can do a portfolio, a musician, you know, you can share your music online. They have great audio tools built into the platform as well. Or if you want to sell things, you can create an online store. Or, you know, Matthew, what could also be cool, I'd love to see someone do this with Squarespace, is to use some of the really fantastic templates that they have, the very visual ones, to create a site dedicated to stellar cartography in Star Trek. Maybe even Larry should get on this. And you can have like an online supplemental to what we're getting here in the books that we just talked about. I think that would be brilliant 
online and Squarespace would be the perfect platform for that. But, you know, whatever you want to create on Squarespace, there are really three key areas that really attract me to the platform all the time. And why don't you tell us about those? Well, Chris, um, as you were talking about, you have the design-focused nature of Squarespace and the fact that they really do care about design. Um, their templates are all extremely clean and, and neat so that they allow your content really to be the focus of the website. And, and for me, one of the most important things, um, and it, I think is a great reference as you see on Trek FM, you can see that cleanliness and it just that focused nature that allows our content to just pop. Um, the next thing that I really do love about it is just that you can connect all of those accounts that you might want to share all of this information on your site easily. So you've got your Twitter, your Facebook, your LinkedIn, your Pinterest, your Instagram, your Google, and we could go on and on because the list is endless these days of social media outlets where you want to share your content. Um, and, and this Squarespace makes that simple and easy to do. Um, you can set up the times you want it to be done. You can um, put everything in there to make it simple and easy. And then lastly, it's got responsive design. And, and as we know, Chris, from living in a world where we all do things on the mobile, you've got your phone, you've got your tablet and your computer, Squarespace has unique uh, design so that the mobile design scales automatically to wherever you're looking at your site, which is fantastic because it really makes your site and your content pop out best by whatever medium you're looking at on. So whether it's my iPhone or my computer, the site looks fantastic. Yeah, it just reflows to fit the screen size and orientation with you just building the site one time in the browser, which is a, a fantastic time saver and uh, makes it easier on your visitors as well. And, you know, also, I mentioned in the beginning that if you want to sell items, you can create a store. Squarespace has teamed up with Stripe to create a fantastic commerce feature that allows you to sell physical or digital goods on your website and process credit cards, uh, calculate taxes, you know, handle setting up your shipping information and, and all this stuff. And it's very, very easy to get going. It only takes a few minutes. And in terms of pricing, it's $24 per month for the commerce plan. And then for transactions, you just pay a small fee to Stripe for credit card purchases, the same way you would in any system where you accept credit cards. And that's it. And it's all integrated. You don't need to go out and get an outside system and put that into your website. It's an all-in-one package with Squarespace. It makes it a very, very simple, the simplest way I've seen to sell products online. So if you are looking to set up a store, you definitely need to check out Squarespace. But whether it's a store or a blog or a website or portfolio, the best way for you to find out how great these tools are is to just try it for yourself. And you can do that free for 14 days. There's no credit card required. Just enter your name and your email address. And in a matter of minutes, you'll be building your website. If you already use a platform like WordPress, you can take that data. You can import it into Squarespace, see how your site looks there, and find out how the Squarespace tools give you everything you need to create an exceptional website. And then when you decide to sign up, and I know you're going to want to, as a Trek FM listener, you can save 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts by using our offer code TREK10. And as I mentioned earlier, if you choose the annual plan, you can get a free custom domain registration as well. So you can get yourname.com, yourcompany.com. Hook that right up. It's very, very simple to hook up and you'll be good to go. So support us and support Squarespace by going to squarespace.com, try it free for 14 days, then use offer code TREK10 to save 10% off your lifetime purchase. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of the Ready Room and Trek FM.
We're really excited tonight to have with us uh, David R. George III, who has kicked off the massive new series for the 24th century, The Fall, with Revelation and Dust. Now, this is the first novel in the Star Trek Fall miniseries that centers around the Federation, the Typhon Pact, and of course the 24th century. And it's also the focus of this novel is the brand new Deep Space Nine. Now, David was responsible for destroying the original Deep Space Nine in Plague's Spoiler Night. alert. Spoiler alert. That's right, <laughs> folks. We're going to go there tonight because there's going to be some big things to talk about. Now, I want to encourage you, as David says, if you have not read this book, Revelations and Dust, please know that we are going to talk about some major things that happen in this book because this is where we get a chance to talk to the author and ask him about those kind of things. So do not spoil yourself. Go read the book first and then come back and listen to the audio file here uh, with the interview. So this book has some amazing things that happen. One, the brand new Deep Space Nine becomes operational and there's an event that will shake the people of the Federation to their core. And so... Uh, David, one of the things that we were just talking about right before we started recording is uh, probably one of the hardest things I think that a, a Star Trek author, uh, and especially one that's writing in Deep Space Nine. Now, Chris and I have been going through and doing the um, Deep Space Nine relaunch from the beginning. And so that was, what, 10, 12 years ago when that started? Yeah, and something like that. Something yeah. like that, yeah. The series went off the air in 1999, so it was right. shortly after that, Yeah. You know. And so right after that, you know, we got Avatar 1 and 2. We were talking about just the fact of how difficult it is for the author and then people like me who and Chris who have been reading these books since they started to kind of remember all that's happened. And you've been really tasked with, you know, you, with Rough Beasts of Empire, Plagues of Night, uh, Raise the Dawn to really continue on Deep Space Nine because it had kind of fallen by the wayside for a while one, I just wanted to know first, what is it like to have to pick up all these story elements? And especially when we really lost a lot of time uh, in Deep Space Nine, what's it like to try and put that together for the readers, have it make sense, but also carry the story forward? It can be daunting. Um, in fact, it's now that I think about it, it's more than 10 years since Avatar. I think Avatar was in 2000 maybe 2001, so it's 12 or 13 years that we're talking about. And really, that can be daunting for a reader, but it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't be because it's got to be daunting for the writer, because the writer has a job to do. And that job is to make sure that a reader who picks up their book cold can follow along and, and, and know the, everything that's going on without having just read all the other books or even having read them at all. It's my job as a writer to make sure that the reader can, can follow along. Now, presumably, if they read the books that came before, they'll get a, a larger experience, a more enjoyable experience. But you have to make sure that when they pick up your book and read it, that they can, they can follow all that. Now, they might be surprised that certain characters are in certain places or certain situations, but everything should be either explicitly explained or should be un be able to be understood implicitly. So really, it should be more daunting for a writer than for a reader because the writer has to make sure that the reader can follow along. And it's a lot of history to go over, too. It, it is. But you know um, what? It's, it's, in a way, it's no different than the TV show because, uh, you know, in a way, because the seventh, a seventh season episode, let's say, can make reference to a first season episode. 
well, you can't assume that the reader, that the viewer just watched that first season episode. So you have to give the information that's relevant in the later episode. Now, that might come in the form of a previously on Deep Space Nine segment, or it could be incorporated into the episode through dialogue or, or whatever method. So, um, you know, we have to do the same sorts of things. Well, and, and then especially with, I was just thinking about the fall, you know, and the, the series. And I, I feel like that this has really kind of been something that's been building since, uh, in some ways, 2005 with Articles of the Federation. Um, you know, you, you have the, the whole um, coming together of the, the Time 2 series, which led into some more Next Generation books, which led into this, you know, massive book. Articles of the Federation by Keith. He introduces us to tobacco and gives us this amazing character. And really through that, everything just flows out of that, you know, um, you know, then you get destiny and then you get the Typhon pact and all this stuff really working together. So for you guys, what was the genesis of this series? You know, I'd like to say that it all, all you know, Keith, uh, Keith and company had it all mapped out from 2005 on, but of course that's not true. Uh, but <laughs> what happens when we start, uh, start writing, when we start trying, we knew we were going to do a, a, an event at the end of 2013, and uh, the editor decided which writers they were going to work with, and we all got together and, and did a little brainstorming, and of course, it isn't that that the plan for for the character of President Bacco, for example, was decided in 2005. But the the fact is that she's been a character for these eight years, and she's got a lot of backstory now, and readers know her. And so now we can take that character and project forward. What would be an interesting thing to happen next? What would be a good story? What follows? What would follow from what's happened before? So we're just, uh, we, we didn't have it planned all along, but we are using what came before and deciding what, what we would like to see in terms of dramatic story and what would satisfy uh, the, the goals we have for the series, which is engaging readers, of course, and moving the universe forward in a certain way. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty involved process. Um, and it, it, I think the editor came to us with uh, the notion, with a particular notion uh, that we uh, expanded on and came up with the overall idea for the entire series. Can you, can you mention at all what, what they had kind of wanted you to do? In, in... Well, I mean, uh, okay, this is the, the spoiler alert part of things. Um, I think the editor came to us with initially had the notion of perhaps we would have uh, an Archduke Ferdinand moment, which mm -hmm. is to say, you know, when Archduke Ferdinand was was assassinated, um, it it actually spurred World War One, and so there was this idea that perhaps having an event like that in the Star Trek universe would be a good launching point for a series, this particular series, which eventually became The Fall. And uh, from that, as a, as a jumping off point, we decided where that could go. We, and of course, I'm not going to talk about where it can go because there are, the second book is out now, which is <laughs> More Books to Come, The yeah. Crimson Shadow. But there are three to come. So yeah, I'm not going to go into detail for that. But obviously, we have, a, we have that 
moment which occurs in my book that is a is a precursor for what follows in these uh, the following four books. So uh, we have a, we had we started from there and just mapped it out and and hopefully we won't we think we have a good story and hopefully the readers will think so too. Wow, that's so. You guys, because it's interesting, because uh, one of Una's uh, Typhon Pack books was Brinkmanship, and mm-hmm. really has this whole and in the Typhon Pact against the Federation, it's very Cold War feel to it, and and then you guys now throwing in kind of the the World War One reference. I, I like the mixture of of real type of history, but mixing it up and and you know putting it in a blender and coming out with what's happening now in in the twenty fourth century universe. Well, you certainly don't want to be predictable either. So, uh, I mean, it's okay to make analogies to actual historic events, and you could even follow them completely, and that could be interesting and great. But you could also, as you say, mix them up and and come up with uh, different outcomes. So, in my book, uh, well, I'll let you ask the question. I I don't want (laughs) to... <laughs> hey, David. Yeah, you can talk as much as you want, but I was going to see, you know, so you are are tasked with with the the very first book, which I think probably is one of the hardest things to do because you kind of have to lay out the framework for everything that's going to kind of you know, you you're planting all the seeds for what's going to come next. But also, you know, as we talked before when we talked about uh, you know, uh Plagues of Night and uh, Raise the Dawn, that you are also really going to be using this is planting seeds for what's going to happen next in Deep Space Nine. So just tell me what it's like to set up the series and and then also, you know, try and make your book enough that it's standalone, that people feel like they can read it and get, you know, a conclusion enough at the end so they're not just completely left hanging. And what's that all like? Because that's a big responsibility. Well, I felt the weight of that responsibility because uh, not so much because I had to set up what followed I'm, I had done that before in Twilight, which was the first of the Mission Gamma series. So I understand what, what the responsibilities are of that. But I felt as though I was serving several different masters with this book. Yes, on the one hand, I had to set up the, the fall series. I had to, I had to crack that nut and had to start out and, uh, with uh, certain events and had to seed things for the, the other writers. But I also had to build the new Deep Space Nine. Uh, as we've already spoiled in, in previous books, Deep Space Nine, or the erstwhile Terek Nor, the first space station uh, by the wormhole, was destroyed. And so Starfleet has built a new Deep Space Nine in the Bajoran system. And this is the first novel in which we get to see that space station. That means... Whereas before, you could tell the story uh, uh, on a, an environment in an environment that the you, the reader was used to. Now you don't have that, so you have to create it from scratch. That's a huge responsibility. First of all, you have to make a lot of decisions, like what is this space station going to look like? How is it going to be different from the previous one? What are the improvements? What makes sense for this in the 24th century? What what are things that I you know? that are difficult to think of, that you want to come up with. And uh, so, so I had a second responsibility, this second responsibility in addition to setting up the fall series. More even than that, I had the third, uh, on the third hand, and this is science fiction, so there's certainly a third hand, um, <laughs> uh, we have to, I had to 
continue the Deep Space Nine story. Well, I, I mean, I guess I, I suppose I didn't have to, but I, I wanted to. I, I thought I had to because we've had all of these Deep Space Nine books, and Raise the Dawn ends, though it tells a complete story, it also ends with some story elements unresolved. And so I felt like I needed to resolve you know some of that, and 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 also set up future Deep Space Nine stories. So I really had three tasks, and that did add to the complexity and challenge of the novel. And uh, for for you then, with that kind of um, complexity and everything, and especially with in reference to the new Deep Space Nine. What's it like? I mean, you're having to basically create, I mean, you know what the outside of the station looks like um, because of what's been done. But, I mean, you're having to create, it seems like in your mind, everything that goes on and what the inside of the station looks like. So, Well, in fact, I didn't exactly know what the outside of the station looked like. I mean, I had an idea because mm-hmm. I realized at the end of Raise the Dawn that I needed to, I, I had to set a scene that really did, at least in a rudimentary fashion, describe the outside of the station. And so mm-hmm. I did that in Raise the Dawn. I tried to be relatively vague, um, although I gave enough detail that it would mean something to the readers. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I knew that it was going to be the next novel that introduced the, Deep Space, uh, the new Deep Space Nine. So I wanted to make sure that whoever the next writer was, could have been me, could have been somebody else, um, had some leeway. Um, and when I started writing the novel, the, the, writing this novel, Revelation and Dust, I needed to, since it turned out to be me who wrote that novel, I needed to actually then decide on the, the actual outside of the station, the, 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 all the details. And then, of course, yes, I had to create the inside of the station as well. Now, I recognize that you're not going to go over every square meter within the station, and there's, you still need to leave room for other writers to be able to to add to the description and come up with other things. But I, I needed for the readers to understand a good chunk of what the, the new Deep Space Nine looked like and how it functioned and, and all of that. And I was fortunate enough that I was really hoping that we could get an image of this. Uh, and I went to my editors and I said, you know, I asked if we could get something on the cover. And uh, they were good enough to turn that task over to Doug Drexler, who was an Academy Award winning and, and Emmy Award winning artist who worked on the, the modern day Star Trek series. And uh, um, he, in turn, went to Andrew J. Probert and Douglas Graves, who are uh, uh, digital model makers, and and they so they worked together to create the, the image of the station, and then Doug Drexler worked to create the cover, and I worked through Doug uh, Drexler with he was the go between with between myself and the model makers, and they also had their own artistic visions that they needed to satisfy. I mean, I had. My artistic vision, they had their artistic visions. They did not always jibe, but they were close enough. And we actually had, because I'd written in Raise the Dawn, uh, uh, that rudimentary description of the station, we had a basis from which to proceed. So there was some back and forth, and and uh, um, I made some concessions. They made some concessions. Uh, I mean, that is, they would compromised on, on <laughs> what their ideas were, what my ideas were. They had some great ideas too that I hadn't thought of, and 
So I was very, very satisfied with the, the, uh, the, the end result. I thought they did a great job, and I thought Doug produced a fantastic cover. Oh, he did. Yeah. The, the result of the collaboration is is absolutely beautiful. I, I love the fact that it feels it feels Starfleet, but you can definitely see the inspiration from the original station in it. It's really interesting because I thought it should not, the station should, in a vague way, evoke the old Deep Space Nine, but only in a vague way. And Doug Drexler felt it should be more like the old Deep Space Nine. So we tried to find, you know, somewhere in the middle that we could meet on that. And, uh, you know, you, you want it to be brand new, but also you know, have some air of familiarity about it. Um, but certainly we're talking about replacing a station that in-universe was 50-plus years old or 60, you know, 60 years or whatever it was and, uh, and, and constructed as an ore processing station. So necessarily what we replace it with will be more modern. It will be for a different function and a different initial function in being a star base and not to process ore. So uh, you wanted it to be different. It, it needed to be different. Well, it feels to me like architecturally, of course, it feels Starfleet, but it also make, it makes me feel like, say, here on Earth, anything that we create, you know, after a number of decades go by, uh, our approach to things evolves. And it feels like an evolution for Starfleet as well in the way that they build a star base. It feels like a, it's like Starbase 2.0, 3.0, whatever. It's like it's an upgrade for Starfleet even. Well, I'm glad that came across because that was sort of one of the things that I was going for. You wanted it to be an evolution in Starfleet's construction of star bases. Mm -hmm. It should be something brand new. And because it's an important station, because it's in an important location, it, it really needed to be, I thought, uh, a grand station. They would not have chosen to create Tarek Nor. They would have made something, Starfleet would have constructed something bigger and better, and that's what I, I think they did here. That's what I wanted to convey that they did here. One of the things I was wondering while you was reading the book was, did did you have Doug or anyone help you kind of figure out what the layout inside looked like? So you kind of had a picture in your mind. So when you were writing, um, you know, you had an idea of, of how it all, you know, where the hub is and, and where the, the new plaza is and where the memorial is and all these things so that you could kind of picture in your mind when you're writing because, you know, writing Deep Space Nine, you're very familiar with exactly what the station looks like, um, you know, and, and everybody who's reading can do that immediately. You know, you, oh, we're in the promenade or, oh, we're in the quarters or, you know, oh, we're in the cargo bays. You know, it's very simple. But now you have this whole new task of, you know, creating something that we've never really seen inside. And so you're having to try and describe it. And I'm sure you're having to do that for yourself. Did you get any pictures of what the layout looks like in the parts you were describing at all? Well, I described the parts before I got pictures of them. So I actually was giving my descriptions to the artists. Okay. And they were coming back. Now, that said, they, they so, you know, it, it, most of the stuff, therefore, originated with me. But that doesn't mean it stayed the way I originated it. For example, initially, I was calling, I had said, it, it, it makes no sense from a strategic, from a military standpoint, to have the bridge of a starship that may go into battle mm -hmm. on the very top of the ship. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exposed. It makes no sense. However, it's a Star Trek, and this is what we do, and it's for artistic reasons, and you could try and come up with an in-universe reason of, look, we're not, we're not people who hide or whatever. But I decided early on that 
that the new um, control center for Deep Space Nine was not going to be easily vulnerable by being, you know, outside, exposed on the top of the station. And so I buried it at the very center of Deep Space Nine, and I called it the core, which I loved. I thought that was a great name for the control center, the core. And um, Doug Drexler um, and, and uh, Andy Probert and Doug Graves provided, um, they, I'm trying to, I don't remember the exact sequence of things, but at some point, um, Oh, I created, I actually, myself, I, not that I'm a great artist or anything, but I, I created, um, for my own, my own um, uh, reference, I created uh, a blueprint of the core. Okay. What it looked like, where each of the stations were, um, and, uh, you know, I created that, and then I, I sent that off to the artists, just so they would have an idea of what I was writing, not that they were going to produce uh, a picture of that or anything, but I'm, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but somewhere along their input made me relocate the core, which once I moved it out of the very center of the space station, I felt I could no longer call the core because it just didn't work. Um, but I moved it once again to the top of the station. And I did it because the, the exterior that they created made it, made the, the, that control center that I had created, the, that, that, that blueprint, it just fit physically perfectly at the top of the station where there are, uh, there are, are, are four um, uh, rings, that, well, there are two rings that come together, so there are, there are um, they're like the pylons on the old station. Yeah, coming yeah together, and there, right? are, there are two rings, but yeah. that's like, that means that, that each ring has, you know, they, they meet four four structures meet at a it's two rings but four um, parts of four arcs meet at a point at the top of the station. It was just mm -hmm. the perfect place because the, the the control center had had four turbo lifts. Um, it, it it just it was perfect up there. So I, I relocated it up there and it and decided to call it the hub because that's what it was and um, uh, it just it just made more sense. So even though a lot of the stuff originated with me, there was we went back and forth uh, the artists and I went back and forth, and they absolutely um, provided inspiration to change things uh, and had better ideas and, and got me to to, to uh, I mean they weren't trying to get me to change things, um, but they they did because you know they had great ideas and great artistic visions. Mm -hmm. They also did a fantastic job with um, the memorial. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I had an idea about, and I, I don't remember, I seem to think that I didn't have an idea where we, gonna, we were going to locate it, and they, they put it beneath the hub, although not accessible from the hub, they put it beneath it, and it was just the perfect place for it. And uh, so there were lots of things like that, but everything sort of originated with me in terms of, I mean, I had the, I, I had, I, I was writing the novel, I had to know where things were in the station. So, um, and um, just the description, of, in some cases they changed the places, like I said, uh, but in some cases I did have to change descriptions because they suggested, uh, for the, for, uh, the plaza, uh, they, had, uh, they had the residential area um, visible from the, the, the commercial area, and, and so I, and that was 
they sh I had saw pictures of that and it worked, so I, I, I changed what I had written to match those dis you know those drawings. So um, it was it was very collaborative, and uh, mm. um, you know I, I had a, a I but I. I had to know exactly what I was writing from the get-go because right. if I don't know it, if, I, if I'm if i vague about it to the readers, they're <laughs> going to be lost. Right, exactly. Well, and I, I remember I just reading through the book, I would, I would reread some of those descriptions a few times because I'm just trying to, you know, really mentally picture, okay, what's this new, you know, Deep Space Nine look like? Any chance at all? I know, I know that you really want us to get to see the station. I'm so glad that your dream came true and that they put it on the cover of a couple of the books, um, yours and then David Max. So both Davids have the new DS9 on their cover. But uh, mm -hmm. any chance right. that we'll see this maybe in uh, on StarTrek.com uh, or you know uh, the Star Trek magazine where we'll have a more in-depth look at the brand new Deep Space Nine and maybe get inside what the hub looks like and you know that would be fantastic and I would love for that to happen but I, you know I don't know that that's going to happen of course anything like that costs money because yeah, people right. have to do it people have right. to publish it um, I mean they could even have you know, fold out plans or whatever in a novel mm -hmm. but all of this costs money so yeah. uh, that's not my call to make. I was just—I was say—I was very grateful that they managed to get Doug Drexler involved for my cover because it, that's a, that's a yeah. uh, expense as well. So um, I, I don't know that that's going to happen. Um, I'm hopeful that the Deep Space Nine books, and while this is the first book of the Fall series, it's still a Deep Space Nine novel. Clearly, um, the Deep Space Nine novels have to sell well if they're going to keep being published. And right. as a reader, not as a writer, but as a reader, I hope that that happens. I mean, as a writer, obviously, I want my books to sell well. But <laughs> even if I don't write any more uh, Deep Space Nine novels, I still want to read them because I have loved all of the books that have followed along since the end of the show. Oh, yeah. Agreed. So if they, they are pop, if they continue to be pop, if if they continue to sell, if they then... At some point, you'd hope somewhere there would be Deep Space Nine blueprints, you know, somewhere in, a, in on Star Trek Online or, or in a fold-out in a novel or somewhere, you know. Right. right. What we need is, after seeing the inside now of Larry's new stellar cartography book, which is not really a book so much, something like that, that instead of maps, they were blueprints of the new TS9, that would be, I think, a dream come true for most of us Niners. Well, if you come over to my house, I can open up, you know, some of my documents <laughs> and do show now. you what All I right. came up with. Okay, we'll bring the beer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're bringing the drinks. I, no, I love that, and I think you know, I, I you know, I know uh, how much Doug loves getting to design this stuff. I I can't imagine that they'd have to twist his arm too much to have him do that. So hopefully. People will buy, buy the books, and, and you know I loved that uh, beforehand on StarTrek.com that they they really did play this up. That hey, this is the new Deep Space Nine. This is what it looks like. I love that they did that, and so hopefully that'll continue. Yeah, I was happy about that too. And Doug's great, easy, so professional, easy to work with, and yeah. clearly great at what he does. Just a fantastic artist. I couldn't have been happier with the outcome. Well, um. You know, this is where we're really going to talk uh, uh, some serious spoilers. And, and so, again, if you haven't, we, we haven't really completely spoiled this book yet, but we're about to, fans, so <laughs> so get ready. But, uh, so, David, we talked about that in Articles of the Federation, Keith created 
probably one of the most beloved novel characters for Star Trek that's ever been created. Um, I think universally, I, I don't know anybody that I know in fandom on online, you know, that I've met that doesn't like President Bako. Um, I, I think she just, as far as I can tell, she's become one of the most popular characters that, you know, never existed in Star Trek that we saw on screen, but, you know, somebody wrote her in a novel and, and became really, I, I loved her from the minute she was on. I thought she was fabulous. Well, so, I, I agree with you in terms of loving the character. I, I love the character from the beginning. I love reading her. I love writing her. She's a joy to write. But I have to disagree with it being universal among fandom that oh, she's okay. beloved. Because, first of all, nothing's universal. <laughs> Just on general principles, nothing's universal. But the first review uh, I saw on this novel uh, mm. uh, that I just wrote was uh, uh, not only a negative review, but it was also uh, uh, in the review the the reader declared that they absolutely despised the uh, nice. and you know that's going to happen. That's just the way yeah. it is. It's again, it's all subjective, and you know who knows why. Uh, you try and create a character that people will like if that's if that's what your goal is, and uh, you know it's not always going to work. But yeah, plenty of people certainly do yeah. love President Bacco, and I'm one of them. So you know, how then for you, hard was it to have to write her assassination? And did you talk to Keith at all beforehand and let him know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill her. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um. I it, it, when we first talked about, as I mentioned, this Archduke Ferdinand moment. Clearly, that's a reference to the assassination of the Archduke that uh, instigated World War One, a, a you know real event. Um, we were talking about killing. Well, you know, you could have could have killed the Romulan Praetor, I assume, or, or somebody else. But really, you know, it, it made the most sense to to think about doing it with President Bacco to assassinating her. And uh, initially, um, I was really on board. I just thought, great story point. It's, you know, scenes like that are typically fun to write because they're dramatic, and you know, how, mm. how, how can you fail that? You know? um, but you know, as I started to, to plot it all out, it really started to bother me because mm. I love President Bacco. Uh, I, I love reading her. I love writing her. Uh, and I wasn't alone. There are plenty of other writers who really enjoy writing the character, and, and I feel like I have um, contributed in, in some part to her her uh, overall character because I've written her a number of times. I'm right. not the only one, certainly. Uh, David, obviously, Keith created her. Dave Max written her. I mean, you know, there there are plenty of writers who have written the character, but um, it just it just started to be just really difficult when I got to even just plotting it before I'd even gotten to the scene where I would actually uh, have the assassination. And I think in part it's all it, it, that was not just because I liked the character and maybe didn't want to see her go, but also because when I thought about it, I thought about the assassination of of uh, President Kennedy. Yes. And yeah. um, you know, I've read so much about how it impacted our nation, about the, you know, how, how the, the country was just devastated by it, and really a lot of the rest of the world as well. And, and you think about some traumatic public event like that, and in my lifetime you think about 
September, the September 11th attacks. Right. And, you know, and I'm a native New Yorker. I wasn't in New York at the time of the attacks, but I'm a native New Yorker. Um, and I know how that felt, how, how just really traumatic this event was that really wasn't, in a sense, a, a, a personal event for me, but it was this, this public event that just sort of impacted all of us. And as the French said, you know, that day we are all New Yorkers. It just was something that was devastating. And I, I thought about, about all of that because in, in universe, if the Federation president is assassinated, it's going to devastate people. It's going to have this just terrible, traumatic, emotional impact. And mm. I, all of a sudden, it, maybe this wasn't going to be so fun to write. And I, I think it really does. I mean, I, I, I saw it coming. And I was like, no, he's not. He's really, no, no, David won't do this. This isn't David Mack. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't kill people like this and then i realized that what was going to happen it was it was it was rough because i i have grown to love the character and you know it's funny you mentioned the predator uh and i would have felt just as badly if she had died as well because i've grown very fond of finally a romulan who isn't just a conniving you know horrible Mm -hmm. person because i feel like uh a lot of times star trek kind of gets caught in making all the characters the same for a race sure i mean it's funny because Star Trek, which espouses inclusiveness and, and is so uh, opposed to, to generalizing individuals, constantly does it. And it, not, because it, it believe, not because those are the, the, the mores that it's trying to get across, but just because that's, the, that's a, an easy way to do things in a television show. All Klingons right. are this. All Romulans are this. You know, until you get to the one Klingon who's not like that, and you actually tell that story. So yeah, right. the, we often end up painting entire races with just one brush. So yeah, I, I love the, the Praetor too. And you know, she was there. The Praetor, mm-hmm. the Romulan leader, was yes. at the dedication with President Bako and the Klingon Chancellor and the Gorn leader and the, you know, all of these other leaders, because while I was foreshadowing something bad happening, I wanted readers to not be sure if somebody was going to get gunned down, that it, they weren't, they weren't sure who right. it was going to be. Right. So that's one of the reasons that we ha- had, you know, this setting of uh, this, uh, this dedication that included multiple leaders from throughout the Federation and beyond. Well, it was such a good, I mean, honestly, just a great pickup from, from what David had done um, in Silent Weapons with Bako meeting with the Praetor, meeting with the Imperator from, from um, the Gorn. The Gorn. Uh, just fantastic that to just kind of see how that's all been working together. And I, I love that you guys just, you know, picking that up and really moving that forward and seeing the interconnectedness of the stories. Uh, really paying off. Um, and like you said, just one of those things that if you've read all the books, you really do get the joy of seeing how this all plays out. And so uh, for me, well done, because, you know, I thought it would be Bacco, but you, you know, the whole scene, you were kind of waiting, okay, who's going to get shot in this lineup? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it felt like, if I, I, you know, it, I, I felt, I tried to convey that something was going to happen, something was building. I tried to give that feel and, and, uh, I've gotten a number of emails uh, from people uh, who've read the book who were staggered by 
Mako's assassination, many of whom were also saddened by it because they, they too loved the character. Um, I got a great email just the other night from somebody who said that they couldn't believe that I did that, that they were, that they were just angry that it happened and that they loved it. Yes. Thought, wow. <laughs> now that that's one of the better fan letters I've ever gotten. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You want to challenge readers too. Like I said, I'm not just challenging myself. I'm challenging and that was a challenge that scene because I said mm-hmm. as I got to it, it, it it actually was very emotional, not just because I love the character, but because, you know, I'm relating it to other things that have happened not just in my life but in, in, in you know, throughout history. Yeah. These are you know, not typically great things to happen. And and I, I kept imagining how the people of the Federation were just going to be devastated by this. Mm. Yeah. For, and, and you know, I, I think um, for anyone who has been reading Star Trek books for a while, and, and even if you don't like the character, it's, it's a big watershed moment for everything that's been building with the Typhon Pack and, and for, you know, since, you know, really 2005 since you kind of had the introduction of the articles of the federation um you had uh singular destiny which carried that on after destiny series uh and so really building this whole part of that star trek world and making it very real for us who've been reading the books and then to have this happen again just makes it a really real event in a lot of ways and so uh, it's interesting because who thought who would have thought that the Federation uh, political environment would become fodder for so many stories. I mean, we'd, we'd gone through Star Trek for a long time without really dealing with it, with just having essentially passing references to it or a scene here or there. And yet, you know, over the last decade, it really has become very, very real and, and a much used um, part of the universe. And I've loved using her, and, and I, I can't imagine not ha- uh, using her because... Um, you know, some of the stories I told ended up being very political, mm. and you just, you know, you need, you need uh, that that uh, governmental mechanism to be there. Yeah, it makes the world of Star Trek feel more real to me. Oh, good. Well, it's always good to hear. Yeah, I, think... I would have voted for her for president. So, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I don't... we tried to make her a good person. You know, we tried to make her somebody who wanted to do right for right's sake, not do the, not do some, you don't do the right thing because it's easy. You do the right thing because it's right. Yeah. And and I liked people around her too. And I liked, yes, I, I like, you know what I like writing? I like writing, um, um, po- political arguments, let's say, uh, where there, there are opposing views because you have to make both opposing views. If you, I think if you want to write a successful scene, you have to write both opposing views as if they're valid. The people who believe in them or espousing a particular view have to absolutely believe in it, and they absolutely absolutely have to have good reasons. I mean, you could just write somebody who's stupid or who's selfish, but that's kind of boring. You want the areas that are sort of shades of gray, and you want somebody that you agree with to be able to make an argument that you believe in, but the other side to also make an argument that you at least stop and say, well, you know, there's some truth to that too. Uh, and, you know, so I, I like writing those. I like, you know, her cabinet didn't always agree with her and there were arguments about what they should do. And it's also good to see a leader taking in other opinions and then arriving at a conclusion. Right. You know, somebody who's actually leading. Definitely. And that's, that's, I think, one of the things that made her a really fascinating 
character and, and something that will be missed now um, in, in that 24th century universe. I think people with her gone are, are going to, are going to, you know, think every once in a while when they're reading a, a new novel, man, I just wish Bacco was around. <laughs> Things would probably be better right now if they, if she was, if she was here. So, well, you know, you say that, but one of the things that's interesting about Bacco is while she presided over the ultimate vanquishing of the Borg, for example, clearly a, wa- a positive watershed moment in Federation history, she also presided over the um, the secession of one of the founding members of the Federation. So, this is true. And, and she felt that loss uh, of Andor heavily, too. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, she, I, I think, even in Revelation and Dust, she was wondering to herself how our presidency was going to be, um, or maybe it was raised the dawn. I don't know, somewhere along the way, she was wondering whether she was going to be remembered for uh, being the president who, who lost Andor, you know, uh, and and be reviled and uh, labeled a, a failure in history because of that. So, interesting character. Well, there's a whole other side to the book and that is where you picked up what happens to Kira after Raise the Dawn where we realize that she's not dead she's somehow in the Celestial Temple and she's locked there because the wormhole has closed itself and so her first experience was I thought and honestly David I I was at work reading and, and reading through Cisco's experience as she's watching it was a really moving experience to, to see that again um, from a diff was with somebody else watching this time mm-hmm. um, and just remembering how good emissary was and how really important that story was because it was such a beautiful story of, of human suffering moving on what it means to be human what it means to be corporeal I mean just a, a really fantastic story and so you have Kira get to see this first encounter that Cisco has with the prophets. Steal from the best. And and why why did you have her start there? And and, and you know and well then... a couple of reasons. This was you know I said earlier that I had the three tasks. One was uh, to create the new Deep Space Nine. One was to start the fall, and the other was to continue the Deep Space Nine story. The fourth thing I had to do. Uh, that was in the back of my mind was, hey, this is the 20th anniversary of the premiere of Deep Space Nine. What are we going to do about that? And um, I saw a way to do that by by recapitulating the the Cisco's experience experiences in the Celestial Temple in the very first episode. However, that's not the only reason I did it. There is Kira sees this. She, she she witnesses what the emissary went through for a specific reason, because there's information that the prophets wanted to impart to her. And they did. And um, I, may be, I may have been a little too subtle about it. I was worried for a long time that I wasn't being subtle enough. Now I'm pondering whether or not I've been too subtle. But there's information <laughs> in that that's conveyed to Kira. Um, and uh, she doesn't harp on it, but she recognizes that information, and um, presumably in the future she will take action based on that information. But that was actually the the whole Kira story. I mean, it starts there. It starts with her, the end of Raise the Dawn, the, the, the wormhole has collapsed with her in it. 
but we're pretty sure that she's not dead because she's been essentially rescued by the last vestiges of the spirit of Elias Vaughn, which clearly is something the prophets have, have, have set in motion. And so this novel starts with her in the Celestial Temple, and she experiences, she sees Sisko's first experience with the prophets, and then her story continues. And that actually, I would say, while uh, the, um, the Deep Space Nine anniversary aspect of it was maybe the D, the D part of the story, and uh, creating the new Deep Space Nine was the, was the C start of, part of the story, and the uh, the assassination was the B part of the story. The A part of the story is Kira's experiences in the uh, it, within the Celestial Temple. This is the story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Of course, there are unresolved questions at the end, but this this story of her within the wormhole is really the the the, the focus of the book, which I think maybe um, some people think that it was actually the Deep Space Nine stuff, which makes sense. But really, it was it was uh, seeing Kira through her experiences within the wormhole. So there, uh, I really got the picture that through this this life that she lives in the past, that in some way the uh, it was almost like the prophets were having her be part of their reconstruction of their temple that's been damaged in some way. And oh, I'm glad that you picked up on that. Uh, again, I was worried uh, at some point that I, I, I was being, I wasn't being subtle enough. And, and now I think maybe some readers haven't actually seen what you saw, which is that at least part of Curie's experiences resulted in the prophets using her corporeality, her, her actual physical being or physical essence to help them rebuild the celestial temple. And you see this within her, her, her uh, experiences her in, uh, in Bajor's past, rebuilding the tunnel through the mountains, which after she, gets, she comes out of that, she sees that at the same time she's also, at least in her vision, sees that she's built a bridge across a chasm. And then, you know, she's whisked away and you realize, okay, the wormhole has also been, has been rebuilt. So that's all, that's all of a piece that uh, that prophets used Kira to help them rebuild the temple, which I thought was uh, really interesting because you know at the at the beginning um, I was like okay well I know David has a reason for telling us this story because the prophets don't really do anything by accident and it was about halfway through the book I realized what they were doing is that they were having her you know be a part of this rebuilding. But at the same time, you made it very real when the very end of the book, who pops out of the, you yeah. know, the tear of the prophet is not Kira, right. who's still there. You thought it was going to be Kira, though, right? It, oh, uh, uh, yeah. And I was like, this is it. This it. is how she returns. I love that. And then I was like, what the heck? <laughs> David, come on. Yeah, that. you got me. I was um, so anything well, you can tell us about? Altec and well, what he's you doing. Know, it's it's fascinating because you're given to understand. I mean, it seems like maybe what Kira is experiencing is analogous to what Cisco experienced when he went back to Earth in the fifties, right? You know, far far beyond yep. the stars when he when he was Benny Russell. Mm. 
So you think, okay, she's in a vision, uh, and it's an historical vision, like you know, Cisco in 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 fifties New York, and then, you know, all of a sudden, one of the people that she was that she was had contact with back in this, you think, vision, also all of a sudden is there in the real universe. So what does this mean? Has have the prophets created this person? Did they, is this is this person somebody else who's who's modeled on this person? Is it a descendant? Is it the actual person? Was Kira actually back in history? These are all good questions, and they're meant to leave you wanting to find out the answers. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's part and parcel of Deep Space Nine to wrap up some threads and and start others. Right. right. <laughs> Clear, clearly, this is the jumping off point for what, what would follow. Um, but, um, oh, I'm real, I, I'd love hearing that, you know, you expected one thing and got something else, and what the hell does that mean? And <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going for. You know, I wanted well, it to I, be a surprise. Yeah, I mean, you, and then, of course, the very next scene... She runs into Tyranitar, and and he's supposed to be dead. And, of course, anybody in Deep Space Nine, we all know, can come back when you're dealing with the prophets. And so, you know, you have have me. I'm I'm ready. Good. Well, and I have to say, I I am not of the opinion that dead characters should come back. Now, I'm not saying this is a blanket statement. I know I know what. David Mack did was brilliant, and what Kirsten Beyer did was fantastic. As a general rule for myself, when I kill somebody, I want them to stay dead. That's why I killed them in the first place. So you have to <laughs> ask yourself, is Tyranitar, is that really Tyranitar? Is yeah. Tyranitar, was he really dead? Did he really die? Um, um, uh, is, is, you know, what time frame is Kira in? I mean, there are all sorts of questions to ask that require answers, and I hope that they'll be forthcoming. <laughs> yes, I, I'm with you. I definitely hope that we will get the answers because I feel like you, you know, I, I, I feel like you're doing uh, that wonderful thing that writers like to do on TV where they are twisting the arm of the uh, the studio to give them another season. Uh, oh, you mean except like for sending, yeah, I was going to say, you mean like yeah. sending Alf home but not actually finishing the story? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um and so hopefully they will really want to continue this because I think you've set up, you know, just another great Deep Space Nine mystery that has to do with the prophets. I mean, you even set up two, which it's subtle, but it's there, Rebecca, um, and the fact oh, that, yeah. you know, obviously she has a connection with the prophets that Cisco and, and Cassidy are probably not going to be happy about when they figure that out. And, uh, and so you know, it, this, this- I, I was hoping that things like that, uh, and it's my belief that uh, things like that were are are, are um, they honor Deep Space Nine. They 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 do they they try and do what Deep Space Nine did as a television series. I thought Marco Palmieri was the in, the editor initially who uh, started the the literary Deep Space Nine, following from the end of the show, um, did a great job just trying to. Um, not just tell Deep Space Nine stories, but tell them in, in, in similar ways to the, to the show. Now, obviously, they're different formats, so they have different requirements, but the hallmark of Deep Space Nine was change. I mean, mm. everything changed. The, the, right. I mean, Julian Bashir is a, a naive 
wet behind the ears, fresh out of the academy doctor. Oh, no, wait, he's actually genetically engineered and a super genius. Gotcha. <laughs> he was fooling us all. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And um, so I like that aspect of Deep Space Nine, that there are all these different layers to things and different twists and turns that things take. And, and you know, Deep Space Nine would set up storylines in one season, not pay them off till the next season or the season after. And, you know, it's important to keep paying things off um, as you go along. You don't want to just continually ask questions. <coughs> Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> I'm, such a, I, I'm such a bad nerd. I've never How seen Battlestar Galactica. How about Lost? Oh, yeah, Lost, yeah. Lost, so let's just uh, make it up as we go, and who cares if we ever explain <laughs> anything. So, um, and, and, you know, I have ideas. Uh, I, I have uh, good ideas. I mean, I hope they're good ideas, but I have um, pretty well-defined ideas of where the story can go from here. But I, you know, who knows if I'm going to be the one to write the next novel, if there's even going to be a next novel. I mean... That part of the novel, the Deep Space Nine part of the novel, the the, uh, the Kira part of the novel, is really, I mean, that's a that's the Deep Space Nine thread. The Fall is not a Deep Space Nine series. It's Next Generation right. and Titan, and you know there are certainly Deep Space Nine elements in it, um, in the other four books. But uh, what I that the Deep Space Nine aspect of my novel is going, you know, that that will continue beyond the Fall. Those, that, those issues are going to be dealt with in the fall. What's being dealt with in the fall are, is essentially, you know, the uh, the fallout, if you will, of the right. Baco assassination. For one thing, you know, who did it? And we're given two suspects, a specific and a generic suspect in, in my mm-hmm. novel. And the question is whether either or both or neither of them did it and, and who actually did and what that what the, what's going to be the repercussions of... The, you know, once once the identity assassin is found out, if it's found out, this is your who shot Jr. moment. You you set it up exactly. with your Archduke Ferdinand moment. This is who shot Jr. That's right. <laughs> that although there will be no showers <laughs> in the rest of the series. Well, we've got uh, you know, Kirsten does um, Voyager. So I say that they should just give you Deep Space Nine and allow you to continue. Uh, and you know, well, I'd be, uh, I'd certainly would, be happy. Let's, uh, let's get pocket on the phone right now. Um, and, uh, make sure that this happens. Well, you know, buy more books. <laughs> that's, all, that's the only thing that can, well, I mean, and you know what, if it, if it's me, great, I'm happy to do it. I, I, I love Deep Space Nine. I love writing these novels. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but there are certainly other terrific novelists working in the Star Trek, uh, universe right now. And, and so I'm sure there's, there obviously yes. are terrific novelists who aren't yet working in the Star Trek universe who certainly could. But, you know, I'm a big David Mack fan uh, yeah. in terms of his writing. Kirsten Beyer, James Swallow, Una McCormack is terrific. Dave Ward, Kevin Delmar. I mean, there's some great, very talented yes. people out there. Yes. And, uh, I mean, this, the Star Trek uh, uh, readership should be very happy. And, and uh, Margaret Clark, who's uh, one of the editors, and, and uh, she's doing a terrific job. And is I think a fine steward for the Star Trek line. I think they'll they'll continue to be uh, um, good novels produced as long as you know those mm. people are uh, uh, are are in charge of things. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that you know Chris and I you know do this show is is and we love to have the authors on and and give you guys a, a voice because we want more people reading the books 
and and especially now where it's the only place that we get to see this prime universe unfold and you guys now can do pretty much whatever you want and and it's so much fun to be able to read that universe uh so just appreciate getting to do that because uh what you guys write is fantastic you keep writing great stuff and we just want to give you a place to come talk about it so that more people will buy more books hey so i'm happy to have a place to talk about it i'm happy to have the jobs and, <laughs> but you know it's, all, it's also a uh it's a nice uh, uh, uh professional community i mentioned margaret clark there's also ed schlesinger who's another editor uh who's working on the star trek line they're they, they really do a fine job of uh of uh just shepherding us uh, along uh, the path, uh, and uh, all these writers that we have are, you know, I had to work with uh, Una and Dave Mack and uh, James Swallow and Dave Moore for uh, for this series. You know, we had to. I mean, we often go to the editor with questions um, uh, and issues, but frequently enough, we'll go to each other just because it's easier. And uh, you know, all fantastic people to work with. So, you know, we're all happy here, you know, as I hope it, if, if only everybody thought the way you thought, we'd be very happy. <laughs> well, David, well, I, just a couple more things. One, I wanted to say I really loved and, and I was just, as I was saying earlier, you know, reading Cisco's story again um, and from Emissary was a really moving experience. And I literally sitting there at work at, at my desk at, on my break trying to kind of choke back some tears because it's such a uh, a really important human thing to learn is how to move on um, from something tr- traumatic that's happened and how to do that and and, and Cisco learning that and, and being able to watch that over and over again what a just a fantastic lesson that's timeless and well I'm glad you enjoyed it but the, the one of the points of that scene though too is that you know the way you felt now you had seen it initially but Kira hadn't Right. Yeah. But Kira's seeing yeah. this for the first time, and now she's considering, you know, her, the, somebody she views as the emissary, somebody who is her commanding officer, but somebody also who is her friend. And now she's seeing right. a part of his development that, while she might have understood it, um, you know, on the periphery, I mean, they had just met when this happened, so she might have understood that something happened on the periphery of his life. She wasn't there when his wife died. She wasn't there for the three years that followed. So all of this stuff is, and to see his mm. tremendous sorrow and see that the prophets had, had really helped him move on. This is yeah. all new to her. And so this allows her to see an aspect of her friend she didn't really know. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And it, but the part of, of uh, the, the reason for this scene is not so that Kira would enjoy it, but so that she would understand Cisco better. And also, right. you know, like I say, the prophets give her some information. So I had fun writing that scene, too. It yeah. was fun to go back. It's such a fantastic episode. Yeah. Well, and I, what I loved is that you you pay that off. You're not just doing it for, you know, to, to bring us back. But I really like the way that it pays off in the sense that the entire Federation now is faced with this issue of where Cisco was because the president has just been assassinated. And do you get stuck where you are or do you find a way to move forward mm-hmm. um, and do that well? And, and that's going to be the big, you know, uh, you know, well, thing well, for the Federation to go through. To, do we do this well or 
you know, do we start a war like in World War One? You know, do we mm-hmm. what do we do and, and, and how do we move forward and, and how we deal with that is going to say a lot about who the Federation is and who it wants to be in the future. Well, and in on. some respects to send Deska, the first officer on Deep Space Nine, and then Roll Aaron, the captain, um, they don't say it in quite the same way. They don't say it in that detail, but they, they, they talk about it, too. They say, you know, Roe asks our first officer the question, you know, now what? I mean, you know, we just had the president of the Federation assassinated. Now what the hell do we do? And, yeah. and he says, you know, we do what we've always, what we Bajorans have always done. And, of course, they're in the context of having just relatively recently come out of the, the decades-long occupation by the Cardassians. He says, we do what we always do. We carry on. We, we, we have to move forward. And, and Rolaren later echoes that. Now, they're not echoing it from the perspective of Kira having watched the uh, you know Cisco's experience, but for the reader that echo should be there. That that, that as you picked up on that that um, the question is you know Cisco had this terrible loss and it was a terribly personal loss. This is a more public loss, but it still impacts people in a personal way. And you know how do we move on? Well, David, I want to really just thank you so much for coming on, and I want to give you an opportunity, one, to just let us know what's coming up next for you, um, what's out there that you've done. This is your spot to, to just kind of let everybody know what's going on with you and where people can follow you and, and all of those kind of things. I want you to, to give you your spot. Okay. Well, um, I actually just had a, uh, uh, I don't like this word, but technically a novelette <laughs> came out um, I guess in August, uh, in a um, Bob Greenberger and uh, um, uh, Aaron Rosenberg and Paul Kupperberger, three three writers and editors who came up with the, a notion of uh, of a shared universe called that they call Redeus. And the conceit of that universe is that at the 2012 Olympic Games in London, all the gods came back. Not 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 the. The, the, the Christian God and the but it's just the all the pantheons of God the Roman gods came back the the Native American gods came back. I remember you talking about this a little bit uh, last time you were on, yeah. That this was yeah, coming and yeah. Uh, they've they've had three anthologies. They've just uh, published the third anthology, um, which is called Native Lands, and it takes place all in North America. The the, the various stories, <clears throat> and I have one in there called the the Instruments of Vice which takes place actually in South Dakota and is just uh, set within this this world of where the, all the gods have come back. And actually, it's a couple of decades down the line um, after their return. So um, I had that, that just came out. Um, I'm actually working on a new Star Trek novel at the moment, which is in the Lost Era, which, of course, is the, the mm-hmm. time frame between uh, the end of Captain Kirk's Star Trek and the beginning of... Captain Picard's The Next Generation. And so I've got a, a novel that should be out next summer, I believe, um, that in that time frame, and that's awfully fun. And uh, people can follow me on Twitter at David R. George III. And I'm on Facebook at DRGIII. If they want to, um, uh, I have a, a page for my writing there. So, um, and if you look hard enough, you, it's easy enough to find my email address if you, if you feel that you need to uh, contact me that way. So, and, you know, and I, and I, 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 uh, I certainly hope that uh, the Deep Space Nine books sell well enough to continue the line going forward, and certainly I would love to return to that and, uh, you know, 
I may go ahead and try and pitch some ideas I have for that going forward. Well, we are definitely behind you in that, and hopefully that will happen, and hopefully everybody will, if you haven't already, pick up a, co a copy of Revelation in Dust in the fall series. Also pick up Una's new book, uh, The Crimson Shadow, which follows that. Uh, and Which is a terrific book, and I, I just found out today that uh, it actually made the New York Times uh, paperback, print paperback awesome. bestseller list. Oh, awesome. Oh, that's great. Which is that's fantastic. Great. Una, Una's uh, a ter terrific person and a, a terrific writer, yes. and so I'm really happy for her with that. And it's a great book. And then uh, Dave Mack's book is uh, A Ceremony of Losses, which follows Una's book. And then after that, James swallows the poison chalice. And mm -hmm. if the series concludes with Dayton Ward's Peace of Bull Kingdoms. And I've read them all and enjoyed them immensely. So I hope Excellent. everybody else will as well. <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for coming on and just walking us through uh, the beginning of the fall. And I can't wait to continue reading it and getting to talk uh, to the rest of the authors as they come out. And so we really appreciate your time. Uh, and you're welcome back anytime to talk about anything that you would like, Deep Space Nine or Star Trek related. Uh, we just really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate the invitation. Always a pleasure, guys. Yeah, thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. Well, Matthew, I'm so glad David could join us today. You know, I really enjoyed this first book in the fall series. It's amazing. You know, as he talked about, we talked about how the politics play into things over the course of the books. And, and that is something I think is lacking in the television series. And it's understandable, but it really does make the world feel more real, like you're mm -hmm. really living in the Star Trek universe. And I'm glad David could join us and, and just find out kind of the thought process that went on there behind uh, writing this book. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was uh, telling my roommate that one of the the favorite things that I get to do on the network is is be able to interview the authors. And, and really, it's because it feels like getting to do the background information for a DVD, you know, or a Blu-ray. Yeah. Right. Uh, we get yeah. to do those extras, and uh, except we get it to to do it with the books and getting to interview uh, any of the authors is, is just an honor. The fact that they want to come on and to our show and talk about what they do uh, behind the scenes with their books and what their thought process was. And this was even more fantastic, obviously, Chris, for us being Niners and getting to hear the background information for creating yeah. the new D Space Nine. Uh, you that know, he, great. It, you know, he couldn't really talk to us too much about it when he, we, he did uh, Plagues of Night and Raise the Dawn. But now getting to have that all in the open and I just can't wait. And I really do hope that pocket will give him and, and, and other authors deep space nine and, and just let them run again, because I feel like that's a series that does definitely need to continue. Um, and as we've talked about many times without deep space nine's relaunch, I don't know if the uh, book universe would exist the way it does in the first place. So um, I, I think it's only fair and, and right to allow it to continue. So hopefully it will. It definitely does. Yeah, I, I hope so. And, you know, we talk a lot about DS9 on the network as well as other things. So if you enjoyed this show, here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network this week. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. Once. I think Cisco and Ducat, you know, in the best tradition of any kind of good writing, you know, the villain is a mirror 
flipped mirror image of the hero and that you know that's for Kirk and Khan and and a whole bunch of great Star Trek so you know you get Cisco and Dukat and they have a lot in common with each other Earl Grey because he's larger than life for 90 percent of the show he is the captain okay like i'm gonna ruffle some feathers right now i'm just letting you guys know this is gonna be controversial but he is the captain that cisco and janeway wished they were the ready room the voyager conspiracy now daniel and i were talking about this in a in a, in a prior podcast about the uh, the 80s moment and so I, I can see seven coming up in this episode i tried to download too much information in your heads <laughs> Try not to study too much in school. <laughs> Try to diverse yourselves. Play with your friends. Go see your family. Information too can be a drug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just say no, kids. <laughs> to the journey. Voyager's funniest moments. They're seeing Sandrine's for the first time, and you see that pool shark guy who is such a chauvinist pig jerk, who says something to the effect to Balana of something like. Treat a lady like a tramp, and a tramp like a lady. It works every time. And she says, Paris, did you program this guy? And he's like, yeah, why? She said, he's a pig, and so are you. Commentary, Trek stars. Carnival. But they are also dealing with essentially general supernatural metaphysical concepts that are not limited to Christianity. So implying that there's a heaven and a hell in this, I think, is limiting, because the show very clearly states... That they are not playing by any simple rule book. Warp 5. Archer and the Prime Directive. In and of itself, that doesn't make it the correct one. I mean, you could argue whether there is even such a thing as an absolute moral position. That is, is a moral position in itself to say that we have moral absolutism versus moral relativism. And the Federation adopts a moral relativist position. Trek News and Views. Andorians. I don't think Shatner would have turned around and said, make sure one of them's an Andorian. <laughs> no, his special effects would have been, they all have to look like me. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Literary Treks. Ongoing 25, the Kittimer conflict begins. And then you get to this starbase where Kirk and his crew are about to embark on their five-year mission. They're, they're eventually going to go on this mission. Right? Yeah. Eventually. It, it'll happen. <laughs> One of these days, they're um, going to go. <laughs> it does kind of make me wonder if they... If they're stalling because they They're stalling, yes. <laughs> yeah, they're stalling because of the film. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So go and check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new shows for you every day of the week, and there are some days where we even have two shows for you. There are lots of ways for you to get them. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox Zune. You can stream and download from the website. Go listen to us talk about DS9, Next Generation, every corner of the Star Trek universe. And you can hop over to trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all of those links. So... Matthew, I have a feeling, and I know our listeners, they, they do love to share their thoughts about the books with us. And if you'd like to do that, there are several ways you can. You can hop over to trek.film slash contact. There's a form there. If you want to send Matthew and me an email that way, use that form. That'll come to both of us. You can go to the forums at trek.film slash forums and talk to other listeners and us about 
this novel and all the other stuff that's going on with the fall, other books, that's again at trek.fm slash forums. You can send us a voicemail using the tab on the right-hand side of any page. Just click that and you can use your webcam microphone to record a message and upload it to us. And then in social media, you know, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and we're always on Twitter under username trek.fm. Now, Matthew, when you're not running around in the the garden on the new DS9, frolicking in the green trees, uh, where can people find you? Well, Chris, uh, they can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also uh, look me up. I've got my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com, writing about all sorts of different things, movie reviews and all that kind of stuff. Uh, You can also check me out uh, doing the orb with you every week where we talk deep space nine all the time so uh, if you enjoyed the conversations that we're getting to have here with uh david then you might enjoy when we do things on that show because we just do deep space nine and we love it and if you don't love it or you feel like you do love it and you just need (laughs) another show to talk about that then you want to you're going to want to check us out there that's for sure yeah Matthew's mission is to convert everyone into a niner. It's true. So. I, I'm I'm not going to lie about it. So uh, yeah, hopefully <laughs> you'll like the show, though. Great. Well, yeah, so you can find me, of course, with Matthew on The Orb. Uh, you can also find me on a similar show called Warp 5 every Friday with Kate Walsh, where we talk exclusively about Star Trek Enterprise. And then on the Ready Room, you'll find me and Matthew and people from all across the network. It's kind of our gathering. It's it's our core, as uh, David originally put in the middle of the station here on the new DS9. Our core is the Ready Room, and you'll find us all over there where we talk about all the live-action Star Trek series every Wednesday. Now we've moved the show from Tuesday to Wednesday. And uh, then in social media, you'll find me under the username C Brian Jones. That's on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And I also have my own personal website at cbrianjones.com. And uh, Matthew, one more thing before we let everyone go, we'd like to ask you once again to please support our sponsor for this week's show. And that is Squarespace, the web's best hosting and CMS that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, online store, really anything that you can imagine. Go create your own space today. I promise you're going to love it. You can try it free for 14 days, no credit card required. And then when you sign up as a Trek FM listener, be sure to use offer code TREK10 to save 10% off your lifetime purchase and choose that annual plan to get the free custom domain registration. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of Literary Treks and the network. Also, there's another way you can help us out. You can go to trek.fm slash donate and get some aliens. We have eight original alien illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. And they're available as badges or art prints, and you can mix and match what you like. And there are different contribution levels to choose from as well. So go Pick what's right for you. Tell us which aliens you'd like to have, and we'll get those right over to you. And your donations help us cover the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring literary treks to you every week. So we really appreciate your support. And thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.